Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 150, recorded on March 21st, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. What do you say we start out with the big news from NPM this week? Yes, NPM has been acquired by GitHub, or is that Microsoft? <laughs> it's. I think it's the more palatable way to say Microsoft. Well, in the press releases from NPM and from GitHub, they did not mention Microsoft once, which is quite telling. And it seems that it is going to be under the management of GitHub, obviously with Microsoft overseeing things and ultimately financing it. But I think that Microsoft are going to be hands-off. They've been relatively hands-off with GitHub, haven't they, so far? Or at least hands-on in a way that people like. And maybe this is ultimately a good thing for NPM. I think that's the very goodwill they're cashing in on with this announcement. And I think it's clear it will be managed by GitHub. NPM makes more sense as a product of GitHub than it does of any other component of Microsoft's offerings. It's still probably a pretty big shock, though, to millions of developers who use that public registry every day. Now, Nat Friedman on the GitHub blog post does say that they will keep the registry free forever, they will invest in infrastructure for that, that they will improve the core experience, and he gives a couple of examples of that, specifically improving on the CLI tools, which I think is awesome, and they intend to engage more with the larger JavaScript community. One thing that stuck out to me in some of the messaging, and it's here in Nat Friedman's announcement, is this language around improving the security of, quote, the open-source software supply chain. I think that's an interesting way to look at NPM. And um, we have definitely talked about some of the security issues these software registries have experienced in the past. And I, I would credit Microsoft with managing their infrastructure pretty well so far. Well, that's another reason why this may well be good news for NPM ultimately, is that apart from the finances, it's the management of this. It's the fact that we hopefully won't see these security issues, developers just pulling their project out and messing up all the projects that depend on that. Hopefully GitHub will be able to manage all that properly. And so we'll see a kind of more professional NPM as a result of this. Maybe. They'd have to come up with some solutions for basic human nature. Perhaps monetizations for projects that are struggling could help with that. I'm skeptical. Let's let's put NPM's footprint into context for a moment. NPM serves over 1.3 million packages to roughly 12 million developers who download these things 75 billion times a month. And if the trends continue, in a few years, those numbers will seem tiny if the trajectory continues. I bring all that up to just kind of turn this around and say, is it? Maybe not even just important, but is it maybe critical that something like NPM remains independent in an open source free software ecosystem? There's obviously, like we just mentioned, benefits to the pockets of Microsoft, especially under the leadership of Nat Friedman, who seems to be doing a fantastic job. Obvious benefits, but I just thought, let's play devil's advocate. This seems like a pretty big, important piece of our open source software ecosystem, if you'll take a term from their announcement. Shouldn't it be independent? Shouldn't it be something that is not owned by a single commercial entity? Well, it was owned by a single commercial entity before, NPM Inc. But they're a small independent company that, uh, when you read the uh, uh, their side of the announcement, sounds like things weren't always great, that they've had some struggles, and that maybe this needed to happen for them. But I'm, 
I guess maybe let's fantasize in a world where a, a foundation of sorts steps in and it becomes something that is maybe managed in that sense instead of managed by a holding company, which then manages another company, which there's a lot of conflicting interests there. I do get where you're coming from here, and maybe the foundation route could have been something they did. But if you're going to try and compete in the commercial world, then consolidation is just inevitable, isn't it? The the only way to survive is just by becoming part of a bigger and bigger entity. And that entity, in this case, is Microsoft. I think the reality of the market right now, especially here in the States, but really around the world, is there are four significant, five-ish significant tech companies. And if you want to get to millions and billions, you got to go through their gates. And that, in a way, gets products into hands of users that never would have had access to that technology, but it also limits the way it gatekeeps, essentially, the way you can get to market. But aside from that, I think the reality of the numbers here suggests that you would need infrastructure experts running NPM within a year or two. Not that they're not already, clearly. But you need somebody who can really operate at scale. And that's one of the big tech companies. And Microsoft is clearly one of the ideal candidates if you're going to pick from the top five. I'm I'm very glad this wasn't Facebook. I'm pretty glad this wasn't Google or Apple too. And it's yet more evidence of Microsoft's shift towards open source. Right. And this fits in line with what we've kind of been saying recently with WSL, the new terminal, and GitHub's acquisition in general. It's It seems Microsoft has realized during a gold rush, the way you're going to make money at this point is by selling the axes and the pixes and the shovels and whatever, the tools, to the gold miners. And in this analogy... Open source development is the gold mine. Yeah, and all that shiny new open source code is the gold. Exactly. And Microsoft's more than happy to help you get that gold because their tools and services, a lot of them have a monthly price attached to them. <laughs> and now NPM is another set of those tools. But more importantly, I think it will signal to the market that this is a safe bet. It's in the hands of GitHub now and Microsoft. You can depend on this. Now, some in our community will have the exact opposite reaction. To them, it's now going to be something that's suspicious. It's something that is probably needs a free replacement, so something alternative to. But to a larger segment of the market, and especially to the business types, this will be a signal of stability and safety for NPM. Yeah, and exactly where that split is and how many people are on each side of it will be telling. I suspect there'll be far more people on the business side of things. I'd like to know how much they paid. NPM and GitHub are not sharing that detail right now. I'm curious, how much does a world-famous software repository go for? What, what do you, like, how, much is, how much is this all worth? I'd really like to know, but uh, nays the word on that one so far. Well, it wasn't the only GitHub news this week. The iOS and Android apps are now out of beta. Had the NPM acquisition not happened, this may have been a bigger story because... Neither one of these apps for Android or iOS are open source. And interestingly, GitHub wrote the apps separately for each platform. They used Swift for iOS and Kotlin for Android. I find that interesting. They went for a native look for each one of them with a couple of shared components and toolbar stuff in there. And it has some essential basic functionality that you would come to expect. It doesn't have everything. In fact, that's one of the main complaints on Twitter right now is people grousing about what it doesn't do. But it lets you organize tasks very simply in a mobile UI. It gives you the ability to respond to feedback and issues. And obviously, the big feature allows you to review and merge pull requests. 
Yeah, you're right that there's been some negative feedback about the stuff that it can't do, but I've also seen some very positive feedback about the stuff that it can do. I've seen some devs tweeting about how they can get some of these tasks done while they're waiting in line for groceries or whatever. So there's, I think mixed reaction is the fairest way to describe it. Yeah, and the thing to remember is these apps aren't done. In fact, I believe it was implied by Ryan Nystrom that the apps may go open source. He was asked, and he said, well, they're not open source now, but maybe in the future. And you could see possibly as they add new features and whatnot that perhaps one day they'll also have a big announcement. GitHub's mobile apps are now open source. One can dream, Joe. Yeah, we can. It's funny that he tweeted, it's not right now, regarding the code being open source, and that was from uh, Twitter for iPhone. (laughs) Hey, that Twitter app launches real fast on iOS, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) So I hear. Well, something that has taken a while to launch is Linux Mint Debian Edition 4, Debian, which has been released this week. Yeah, I think it's been a few years, uh, but it's here. LMDE 4, Debian Edition, and... um, This is their hedge on Ubuntu going away one day, keeping the project sustainable with a different base. But over the years, it's kind of turned into a semi-unofficial slash official way to have a slow-release rolling Mint desktop. But it has seen a bit of neglect over the years. They'll kind of release it, and then certain packages get updated, and it gets a bit kind of left behind while they concentrate on the, the main Linux Mint edition. So I'm really hoping that with LMD4, they can give it a bit more time and resources now because I installed this yesterday and I was actually really impressed by it. Recent versions of Cinnamon are pretty good and that's the primary experience you get with Linux Mint Debian Edition. I like it. Um, For me, it's not quite the right fit. So it's based on Debian 10 Buster and it has kernel 4.19, which feels like it's from 100 years ago at this po- at this point. So there's things I like about it in that the concept of a semi-rolling release, because sometimes upgrades are challenging with Mint, that's based on Debian, which is a great foundation, with Cinnamon, which is turning into a top-grade desktop environment that needs upgrades every three to four years. That kind of sounds almost like your perfect kind of thing. Like It seems like it's right in your alley, but for me, it's just a little too old. Well, yeah, and also the fact that Cinnamon is very Windows-like. I can see why you don't like it, because you don't really like Windows. But I think as a UI, that's perfectly fine. So I like it. It's been ages since I've tried out Cinnamon or Mint of any description, but I think I should maybe give it a bit more attention. I think if I was going to switch to Mint, I'd probably want to go with the main edition, because if I were betting on the odds in Vegas, I would bet that between Ubuntu... Linux Mint proper, and Debian, and Linux Mint Debian edition, if any one of those distros was ever going to go away, first I would bet on Linux Mint Debian edition going away. Then, before I ever bet on Ubuntu going away, I'd bet on Debian going away. Because the project is cratering right now anyways. People are living in a fantasy land if they think Debian is in a sustainable point right now. And maybe you haven't been listening to enough of these shows, but this project is on the verge of cratering. And there may be a future where Ubuntu has to pull this up by its bootstraps and just have their own repository that they build off, and we have Ubuntu proper. (laughs) I would bet on that way more than I'd bet on this escape hatch ever needing to be pulled for the Mint project. And so I just look at this from a practical standpoint and go, I I don't know if I see another five years in this. You might be right, but it never hurts to 
hedge your bets to some extent. I suppose it depends how much in terms of resources and time is going into this. If it's just a kind of side project for them, then why not keep it on the back burner? That's what I think. And that's why when we talk about their cadence and some of the packages being out of date, I think that makes sense when you consider this is it's a plan B, and I think it gets the right amount of appropriate resources. I'm reminded of the old tales that Apple used to keep x86 Macs in the uh, bowels of Apple when they were on PowerPC just in case. And then one day, guess what? That became the predominant platform. And the reason they were able to make that transition successfully was because they had kept x86 builds and x86 machines around essentially as Hackintoshes. And um, that gave them the runway to actually make it successful. And that's a kind of the same exact theory that's being applied here for Linux Mint. So I like it, the idea. I mean, I get why they're doing it. It even seems sort of practical. I just would maybe dial down the rhetoric a little bit in the announcement paragraph for this release. Second sentence, quote, its goal is to ensure Linux Mint would be able to continue to deliver the same user experiences and how much work would be involved if Ubuntu were ever to disappear. And then it's actually restated a little bit later, too, in here. Uh, That just seems almost a little disrespectful if you consider that Linux Mint was made possible because it's able to piggyback on all of the work that goes into an LTS. It's sort of been the mother's milk for this distribution that now pays a good amount of money every single month. It seems like you'd have some sort of reverence and respect for your parent distribution, especially by my estimation, when it has a better shot than Debian at this point of surviving. And yes, I understand Ubuntu is based on Debian. Well, that leads us into the next story then, doesn't it? And that is the Debian project leader elections 2020. And there are three candidates with quite different manifestos. I think there's one candidate. And that's why I am maybe hitting this as hard as I am in this episode, because I look at these candidates in front of us and I nearly panic for the future of my beloved Debian distribution, a distribution that has been around for as long as I have been in Linux and was key in me getting started. It's a distribution that I have a deep respect for. And the three candidates that are applying, well, at least two of the three are not ideal. This project is in bad shape. People are in denial about the state of this project, and I don't really see anyone fully addressing any of it. I don't think any of them fully solve the problems the project is facing right now. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I think that whoever wins, you're going to have problems. You've got Jonathan Carter, whose platform is continue to do what Debian does well, among some other things as well, but he concentrates on technical excellence and promoting free software and things like that. Basically, more of the same. Um, and he kind of does address some of the other issues that are there, but it's he's very much the continuity candidate. Then you've got Sruthi Chandran, whose platform is very much about diversity. It's not quite a single issue, but it's it's very much concentrating on the diversity angle and increasing diversity within Debian. And she doesn't have as much experience as the other candidates, and we know that diversity is a very divisive issue. And then you've got Brian Gupta, who says, I'm running for DPL with a singular goal, the creation of Debian, US, and EU foundations. I largely view my candidacy as a referendum on this goal and its details. So he's very much a single-issue candidate. And he describes in his platform about how 
he's going to achieve that and you know it's, it's basically adding a lot of bureaucracy which he sees is required for the project to continue so you've got three very different approaches here which are all kind of divisive in their own way so it seems that no matter who wins it's not going to solve any problems and we kind of talked about this a couple of episodes ago that it needs someone to come in and really take charge of this situation and bring everyone together. But maybe that's just impossible. Clearly, uh, Carter and Gupta have the most experience with Debian. Uh, Gupta has been a Debian member for about seven years. Uh, Carter has been in the development field for a long time, but also been in Debian, the project itself, for quite a while. And then Chandran is new. She's been a developer since May of 2019 and a maintainer of a package on Debian since 2016. My concern is all of these candidates, while um, good candidates for those singular issues, are not addressing the spectrum of problems that's going to cause this distribution to implode upon itself. Debian is a platform. It's more than just a couple of packages. It's more than one architecture. Debian itself is a platform. It's an entire operating system that uses the Linux kernel, really, and the GPL land. I, I just, I don't feel like any of them are looking at it from that perspective. And additionally, the only one that seems to actually have the experience and a somewhat decent platform seems to be Carter. So there only really seems to be one candidate here who has the goal for technical excellence and making the community easier and more straightforward to contribute and participate in and remove bottlenecks for new contributors and work on attending to some of the basic housekeeping items of the Debian project that have been neglected. Carter is the only one that's addressing all of those. And I don't normally hit this so hard. In fact, we've covered Debian elections twice now on this show before, and I've never hit it this hard before. But I, I can't, I cannot stress this fact enough. If you are not paying attention to what's happening to the Debian project, you need to wake up and pay attention to what's happening. And this matters. This election for the Debian project, it matters more than any of these we've ever covered before in the 13 years that I've been on air covering Debian news. Well, I wouldn't go that far as to say that the project's doomed or anything, but I think it is in serious trouble and whoever wins this does need to bring it together. I think reading through the platforms, you're probably right. I would probably vote for Jonathan Carter, but I do worry that he's going to kind of leave behind the people who want to see more diversity and stuff. And this System D situation that's been bubbling again, there's not really any mention of that in any of these platforms here. So that's going to have to be dealt with. It does seem like they're going to be testing times ahead. And I, I just don't have huge confidence reading through these three that any of them are going to be able to manage it. I, I foresee them not doing more than one term, put it that way. This definitely comes from a place of passion for me. I, I am, oddly enough, extremely passionate about the Debian project. Uh, I think it's a, just a, it's, it's just a, an essential, essential part of the free software ecosystem. And um, I think to play nice, everyone has sort of glossed over how bad this has gotten. And to your earlier point, one of the reasons why I think they are quite doomed is it, it's too late. The conversations are too far along to just shut individuals out. These people need and deserve representation because they are now officially parts of the project and their viewpoints have to be heard. And if they're ignored, it's just going to irritate the problem that much worse. And it's going to slow things down that much more. I think we've probably hit this maybe even harder than we need to, but I think what I am worried is, is that I'm going to spend the next two years on the air, or longer, I don't know how long, documenting the collapse of this distribution. 
And that, it, it literally chokes me up and makes me sick to my stomach to think about that. I don't think it's going to collapse. I think that it's going to change, and that change may well be for the worse, but I don't think it's just going to go away after 20-odd years of being around. Yeah, I suppose you're right. After all, I, I think I have family members who still watch VHS. <laughs> I think my mom's still got some somewhere. Well, from the free software end of Linux to completely the other end, this week we saw the announcement of the Works with Chromebook stickers. Well, it is Gen 2 after all, Joe, just not as we know it. Not as we know it. <laughs> These are uh, much like other manufacturers that have works with. It's a similar idea where Google will actually test the accessories to ensure they comply with Chromebooks, and then they put a badge on there. And then you know that it's good to go with a Chromebook. I do like this from the standpoint of Chromebooks are great for family members that don't need a Windows or a Mac machine for their computer uses, and Chromebooks kind of work well for that. And now you can just point them at a category of chargers and keyboards and other accessories like cables and adapters. They're all tested by Google to work with the Chromebook. It's kind of a kind of a nice idea. Yeah, and my first thought was, if it's going to work with a Chromebook, it's going to work with basically any Linux distro. That's what I was just going to say. And there's some nice stuff on here. You know, Logitech has some devices like webcams and headsets that are supposedly going to be certified to work with Chromebooks, which really means, and that's why I made the Gen 2 joke, they're, they're working with the Linux kernel because that's where these drivers are implemented. Yeah, so this is ultimately something we've talked about for a long time, which is having a works with Linux sticker, which is effectively what we're talking about here. It might be through the back door and... You know, there might be some proprietary stuff on top of Linux that Google is controlling and capturing all your data, but ultimately you will be able to walk into a bricks and mortar shop, look around at the accessories and know what is going to actually work with Linux. I mean, these days, most of it is just going to work anyway, but this way you'll actually know. Yep. You can pay a little extra for the USB-C charger right next to the same exact thing that doesn't have the sticker. <laughs> That'll be great. Oh, what's this? Oh, I see a sticker on their website for works with Fuchsia. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That'll be in the future. <laughs> yeah, one day. One of the things that family members have often needed is the ability to print and scan, and that's where it gets a little weird with Chromebooks, but it appears Chrome OS will soon get a print management app that just simply allows Chrome OS users to view and manage native local print jobs. And because why not, Google seems like they're also slamming in a scanner UI into the print manager app so you can also interact and scan with a connected scanner. Honestly, that's like the number one missing feature for family members that have Chromebooks. So I would not be surprised if they are just slowly incorporating different user feedbacks from schools and general user communities and just checking these features off in Chrome OS over time. Yeah, and eventually it's just going to become yet another full-blown Linux distro. It started out as just a browser, and look how far they've come. Yeah, it truly is a full-blown desktop operating system now with window management, Linux apps, a printer and scanner UI. The only thing it's missing is a way for me to set up my modem. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know how they're going to solve the uh, the problem of not being able to connect to your printer because uh, I don't think I've ever seen a Chromebook with a serial port on it. Oh, boy. There you go. The serial port. No, it's fine. I have an adapter so I can use my parallel port. All <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> but in slightly more serious news, Chrome and Chrome OS updates are going to be paused because of this virus situation. They are going to continue to offer security updates. That's kind of what they're concentrating on. 
which I think is quite a sensible approach in these testing times. So you're telling me that somehow the coronavirus is delaying Chrome OS releases? I find this to be a fascinating limitation in the Google infrastructure. I wonder if it's one that's a technical limitation. Is it a security limitation? What is it that prevents them from issuing Chrome OS updates when staff are not physically in the office? Well, I am assuming here, based on no evidence, that they are just planning here. This is contingency planning. Oh, okay. Because people might be taking time off and people might be getting sick or whatever. So it just seems like if they put this out there now and just say, look, there's not going to be any Chrome OS updates or any you know major updates to the Chrome browser, but we will prioritize security updates, it means even if they end up with a skeleton staff, they'll still be able to do that. So I think it's quite a sensible approach, really. I see what you're saying. So it's not so much that they can't mission impossible into like a central chamber that has a button that has to be pressed with a retina ID authorization. It's more like our staff are just dispersed. We're kind of unproductive. So we'll just focus on security for now. Yeah, I think so. All right. I like the mission impossible visual, but I think you're right. (laughs) In the meantime, I'm looking at installing Papple, Joe. Papple. I'm done with cups. Yeah, this seems to be what Michael Sweet has been working on since he left Apple, where he was working on cups. He was doing that um, weird um, like label printer thing, but it seems that as part of that, that was called LPrint, uh, this P-A-P-P-L, Papple project has come, and it's an alternative to cups. A cups alternative. I didn't even know we needed it, but now I'm uninstalling it immediately and putting Papal on there because it supports all the major imaging formats. It supports printers that are connected via USB or like JetDirect network connections and app sockets, and it's licensed under the Apache 2.0 license. It'll incorporate the label printer stuff. It also leans heavily on the IPP Everywhere standard, which is the Internet Print Protocol, and uh, which is part of CUPS as well. It seems like it'll be a nice modern version of Cups. I don't know why we need it, but I'm actually, I kind of joke about the whole story because it seems like printing and modems are such a solved problem right now. However, I'm kind of curious to see where this goes. And it's one of the things that I love about Linux and free software is that sometimes to our detriment, nothing is done necessarily. Like how much innovation do you think has gone into the Windows print spooler in the last five years? (laughs) Yeah, probably not much. There's really very little incentive for a commercial company like like Microsoft to throw 30, 40 developers, which would cost them tons of money because these are well-paid people in a very expensive part of the United States, to to update the print spooler. Like it's just not a priority. It's it doesn't it doesn't sell more licenses. It's it's silly. But in the free software land, Michael Sweet had an itch to scratch. And here we are looking at modernizing a component that many of us assumed was done. And the great thing is, once again, you don't have to choose to use it either. Yeah, it's strange. There's competition in a space where I thought there never would be any. So that's probably good. Well, spin down your Bitcoin mining, Joe, and focus your GPU on fighting COVID-19. Yeah, the Folding at Home project has seen a huge resurgence in the last couple of weeks. And now you can use those unused GPU and CPU cycles to contribute to potentially fighting this thing. CoreWeave, which is one of the largest Ethereum miners, has made a decision to redirect 0.2%, which actually represents 6,000 GPUs, towards folding at home to help fight COVID, which is a neat way for a company like this to kind of not only get some good PR, but generally contribute some very powerful resources to solving a problem. Yeah, and Intel and NVIDIA 
uh, encouraging people to do this as well. There's been a massive jump of like, I think it was 30-ish thousand people were doing it before. Now there's an extra 400,000 and counting. And another related story, just a quick follow-up from last week. We talked about Firefox 74 having been released, and they had disabled TLS 1.0 and 1.1. And we were kind of joking about how surely there's no websites out there that are still using it. Well, it turns out there are some government sites still using the old standards. So Firefox has temporarily re-enabled TLS 1.0 and 1.1, so people can actually still access those sites. You know, we should have a rule on the show when we're trying to figure out who could possibly be using ancient technology. We should just assume it's some government in somewhere in the world. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's so not surprising when we think about it. So good on Mozilla, I suppose, to revert that change. So that way nobody has an issue during a global pandemic getting access to information. One other item that slipped in here that they're kind of pitching as a privacy improvement I think it's actually kind of a bug fix for WebRTC in general, but you be the judge. They're now providing better privacy for web voice and video calls when you're using WebRTC. So depending on your WebRTC session scenario, you could be actually leaking your public IP address. It's one of the kind of downsides to using WebRTC. However, now Firefox has added support for MDNS ICE, which cloaks your computer's IP with a random ID in some of those WebRTC scenarios, improving your privacy. I think you could probably argue that maybe it should have been designed this way from the very beginning, uh, or you could argue it's an implementation detail and so it's a feature. Well, either way, it's good news. And while the world's dealing with all of this, it's business as usual for us. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get future episodes. And we'd love to hear from you, linuxactionnews.com slash contact for all the ways to get in touch. And if you'd like my analysis on the world events going on right now, check out Unfilter, unfilter.show. It's back, baby. And just to say, Foss Talk Live 2020, which I've mentioned on the show before, that has now been cancelled. I won't be doing that for pretty obvious reasons. You can read more about that at fosstalk.com. Maybe in 2021, eh? Well, in the meantime, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at chrislass.com. And you can find me at joerest.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.